This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hello, Candice. And today we're going to talk about some very controversial men, the robber barons, who have a legacy of being greedy capitalist jerks. But we're going to actually talk about the notion of philanthropy and to do that, we should probably start back at the origins of the idea of philanthropy. Yes. And it has rather mythic origins. And if you'll go with me here for a moment and accept that myth is true, we will venture to guess that the very first philanthropist was the Titan Prometheus, who, according to the story, brought fire from the gods to people on Earth who needed it for their sustenance, essentially. And if you look at the the Greek word from which philanthropy is derived, it means love of humanity. And there's a difference between philanthropy and charity. And the best way I can think of to explain that difference is that charity is about treating the symptoms. You give money for things that you can actually see, like, oh, those people are poor, let's give them money. While philanthropy is about treating the causes, like, oh, those people are poor, let's figure out why and let's fix that. I think people mistakenly use the words interchangeably, charity and philanthropy. And a member of the board of directors of the Pew Charitable Trusts, Rebecca Rimel, explains that philanthropy is actually a gift of transformation. And whereas in the past, a lot of charity was based on Christian ideals of obligation, of almsgiving, for instance, of giving food and money to the members of society who need it, the concept of giving back to the society that has nurtured you has really evolved throughout the centuries. And we see a, a beginning of evolution right around the 16th century in England when charity had become very different. And this was due in part to a couple of factors. For one, England had separated from the Church of Rome. There was some mess going on with the Tudor throne, and the middle class was getting larger, so the idea of a, a feudal society, for instance, still working was a little out of the question. The idea of a lord taking care of his serfs because there were too many serfs now and they were getting a little bit wealthier. They had their trades. They were making their own livings. And so uh, the authorities that be decided that 
people giving out money didn't really know what they were doing. They were actually making things worse because they had no perspective of the larger social issues at work and the funds they were giving were often misappropriated. So in 1601, we had two different types of legislation. The Poor Relief Act, which Parliament gave power to city officials to deal with poverty relief measures through, and then the Statute of Charitable Uses, which essentially regulated funds from private donors under the supervision of the Lord Chancellor. So you see the beginning of charity becoming philanthropy, being governed by some sort of central authoritative body and doling it out. And instead of just putting money down the drain, there was actual oversight and some questioning about what the causes of all this was. Precisely. But in the 20th century, this is when scholars say modern philanthropy really began. And we owe this huge glut of money in the system, in the United States at least, to the Industrial Revolution and some men who made the most of the different types of trades that were going on. And that's where we get the term of robber baron, although some people say that's unfair and they should actually be called captains of industry or industrial statesmen. Ayn Rand is actually a huge fan of the robber barons and called them the greatest humanitarians of mankind and also made the point that before anyone can rob, there has to be something to rob. That's interesting because one of the robber baron's own descendants said that she was tired of hearing Andrew Carnegie talked about like a Santa Claus, a great benevolent giver. She said, talk about the real stuff. So I think there's two sides to the robber barons. And most historians would agree that while they were very greedy men who often manipulated not only their workers and the system, but government as well to make their billions They gave a lot of it back. The term robber barons actually comes from medieval Europe, and robber barons are what they called warlords who preyed on the people passing through their territories. And Matthew Josephson, a historian, resurrected the term for his 1934 book about these Gilded Age businessmen, where he painted them as ruthless, greedy people who bribed the government, were bad to their workers, and basically made money off the sweat of honest men's backs. And to jump on what Josephson pointed out, J. Bradford DeLong, who wrote about Robert Beer and economics, explains that in 1900, some economy historians think that, direct quote here, the share of national wealth held by the richest 1% of households peaked at 45%. That's wild to think that that tiny percentage of people could hold that much of the national wealth. And DeLong goes on to attribute the billionaires' billions to three different factors, the first being their inheritance and how well they did off the stock market, the second being favors from the government, and the third, what he calls being in the right place at the right time. And essentially, this is making businesses that mattered to the country's infrastructure and function, as well as holding a monopoly on that particular business, an example of which would be Carnegie getting into steel right before the big railroad boom, before structures like the Brooklyn Bridge went up. If you want to, you know, a monopoly on that type of product and you can control everything, then you're going to make billions. Well, and basically he bought it all up before anyone wanted it. So he had all of the supply before there was ever a demand. And you could say that having that kind of foresight, well, that's genius. He, he deserved a share of that money that he had. But then we get back into this very difficult question that's still relevant today, and that is, Are society's wealthiest members obligated to give their money back to society? And we'll, you know, venture a couple of different answers here when we 
go on to discuss whether or not the robber barons were, in fact, history's greatest philanthropists. And in case you don't know who the robber barons are, we're going to throw out some names that you've probably heard. John Jacob Astor, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Flagler, um, Edward Henry Harriman, John D. Rockefeller, Leland Stanford, Cornelius Vanderbilt. And if these last names sound familiar, you can probably think of different schools and libraries and structures and public facilities that share their last names. That's not coincidental. One of the ways that these men dealt with the guilt of amassing such great wealth was giving it back to society. And Andrew Carnegie actually said, the man who dies rich dies disgraced. And later on, he gave a very telling um, amendment to that sort of explanation by saying that the wealthy had to give back to society, the society that's enabled them to amass their wealth, quote, and besides, it provides a refuge from self-questioning. And Carnegie is actually a fascinating case study of the robber barons. He reckoned with his billionaire status by spreading his money around. And he was born into a Scottish family that fell into poverty as a result of industrial revolution technology supplanting hand-skilled laborers. His mother was incredibly ashamed of the poverty that met the family. And she was a driving force all throughout Andrew Carnegie's life. She wanted nothing more than to appear in the town in Scotland that they were forced to leave riding in a carriage, and being very grand. He would later go on to fulfill that dream of his mother's. So the Carnegie family came to the United States in 1848, settled in Slabtown, which was a neighborhood in Pittsburgh. Andrew had a couple of jobs when he was starting out, beginning in a textile factory, then becoming a telegraph messenger, then working on the Pennsylvania Railroad under Thomas Scott. Then he settled in New York, became more interested in this Bessemer converter that he kept hearing about and its contributions to refining steel and what exactly it could do for the steel industry, which was yet to boom. So he got in early, setting up a plant, then acquiring more plants. And he became this incredibly wealthy man based on a philosophy of never fixing things. He would start a project completely over. He would scrap things if they weren't going well. If workers weren't cooperating, they were out. He didn't like cooperating with unions. It was, you know, one chance or nothing with him. And he came off very benevolent because he hired an operating lieutenant named Henry Clay Frick to do his dirty work. And you may remember Frick's participation in the Homestead scandal, which I wish we had time to get into, but unfortunately we don't. But Carnegie always portrayed that he was a benefactor to these workers, even though he would only give them one day off per year and even though their personal lives meant nothing to him. And he was so ruthless in his business ventures. And one great illustration of this ruthlessness is in the homogeneity rumor that he started to get steel contracts for the railroads. He began spreading the news that other steel manufacturers lacked homogeneity in their steel. And so no one should work with them. And no one knew what homogeneity really meant. And it didn't mean anything. He was making it up. But it was the start of corporate speak. (laughs) It was the start of corporate speak, precisely. And from there, from his uh, high perch in, in the um, ivory tower of wealth and business brilliance, he wrote a couple of books, one of which advocated for democracy in the workplace, and another was The Gospel of Wealth, which professed that the wealthy had to give money for the public good. And in 1900, Carnegie became the richest man in the United States when he sold his business for $480 million to J.P. Morgan. And he went on to use this money to establish libraries, 
the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace and different centers for recreation and industrial towns where he'd built these factories. It was sort of his, his write-off for his really hard-line business practices. At the end of his business ventures, he really wanted to reconcile with, with Frick, with whom he'd had a falling out years before. And Frick's response was, tell Mr. Carnegie, I'll meet him in hell where we are both going. I love that line because it paints a vastly different picture of Carnegie than the man who was allotting money for world peace. It showed this type of telescopic philanthropy, to quote Charles Dickens, the idea of thinking bigger than the space you're in. If you can contribute money to orphans in Africa, which was Dickens' example, but your children at home are running around in rags and they're dirty and unfed, what good have you really done? Well, and Carnegie's idea of philanthropy was rather elitist. My favorite quote from him, he discusses the duties of a man of wealth as he sees them. And he says, first to set an example of modest, unostentatious living, shunning display or extravagance, and after doing so, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is called upon to administer, and goes on to say that he's the trustee for his poorer brethren because he has superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer it for them. So the people aren't smart enough to do things for themselves, but these men of talent and of great wealth should be taking care of the public funds for them. And it's very hard to reconcile that with the idea of a, a true philanthropist, because in the broadest sense of the term, setting up some sort of organization to dole out monies for the areas of society which need it the most, that's what philanthropy is. It's solving the root of the problem instead of just trying to ameliorate it by putting a Band-Aid on it, you know, giving food to a man instead of teaching him how to fish, which would set him up for life. And he thought that private citizens should be doing this as well, not the government, he and his fellow robber barons did not believe that the government was capable of doing that. They were probably some of the original small government fans and thought that private citizens should step in where the government was failing. Private citizens didn't have the money, though, because the robber barons had most of it. <laughs> so they decided they would step up, actually. How magnanimous. My personal favorite robber baron is actually John D. Rockefeller, who came from interesting beginnings. According to one article I read from the Hoover Institution, his father actually did sell snake oil. So snake oil salesman actually has a real meaning there. Um, a bit of a con man. He married another woman while he was still married to John's mother. Okay, you were talking about philanthropy, not philandering. <laughs> well, he really did achieve the American dream. He worked from these not so auspicious beginnings to become one of the richest men in America. And that feeds into the idea that you owe the society in which you're raised the money or a part of the money that you've amassed to think that he came from nothing and he was able to use the land and use the institutions to create his fortune. He was a devout Baptist all of his life and that really influenced him. And biographers have talked about it possibly being contradictory that he was so religious and yet such a greedy businessman. But one writer I was reading was saying, that it's not contradictory at all. It's more of a paradox kind of thing, that he could be both things, that there was gray area there for him to be both quite avaricious and also a good person. He did some great stuff with his money because of him, hookworm was eradicated in the South. So thanks for that, John. And he also founded the University of Chicago, which even now is one of the best universities in the nation. Well, it's a circular argument to say that you should be less 
of a greedy and hardline businessman and that you should do great things with your wealth because the harder of a line that you take, perhaps the more money you make, perhaps the more good you could do with that greater fortune. Well, I think some of them use that as a justification for being as hardline as they were in their businesses as well. The more money I make, the more I can give back. So I should try to make as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That sounds like Carnegie saying a, a reason for assuaging one's guilt, like I quoted earlier. And just for fun, um, along with great wealth, sometimes comes great eccentricity and and perhaps the logic some of these men use to deal with their businesses was related to the fact that they were essentially alone in their fortunes. Who could they relate to aside from the other massively wealthy few people there were? And J. Pierpont Morgan did his part to help out uh, bailing out the federal government from bankruptcy in 1895 when their gold reserves had gone way, way down. And ultimately, it was financial turmoil that brought down the age of the robber barons, as uh, J. Bradford DeLong, whom we were discussing earlier, explained. The Depression and New Deal era legislation made it difficult, and for a while it seemed impossible to be a billionaire in the United States. The government was essentially putting a cap on how much money people can make. And then along came the modern era of technology, telecommunication, computers, and it seemed inevitable that someone was going to figure out the intricacies of this subject first and make billions, and someone did, and that was Bill Gates. And if you look at the most current list of billionaires in the United States, I found one on Forbes published in March 2009. It's uh, people in the financial sector and people in technology who've made the most. Uh, Bill Gates is number one. You have Warren Buffett at number two, Bloomberg at 17. And what's interesting, though, is that a big percentage still is comprised of heirs and heiresses. There are three Waltons descended from Sam Walton of Walmart on that list and two Coke oil heirs as well. But going back to philanthropy, I think Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are both very involved in philanthropic efforts. Very much so. So we still we haven't answered this debate and maybe it's not our place to about how much the wealthy are obligated to be philanthropic. It seems like society certainly expects people to be philanthropic, even if we just turn to uh, Hollywood for an instance, and we look at the different movie stars and celebrities who are known for their philanthropy. Angelina Jolie, I think, for instance, uh, philanthropic, very much a humanitarian. Perhaps she has a, a higher public opinion of her than someone who seems to piddle away his wealth or her wealth. Or the way companies now do corporate contributions, and people have criticized that more as a way of branding or social marketing as opposed mm -hmm. to philanthropic efforts that actually are meant to help. Right. And we could go on and debate what does it say about a woman if she's hosting some sort of philanthropic gala and she wears a $5,000 couture gown? What does that say? But it's a personal decision at the end of the day, just like these robber barons who were some of history's greatest philanthropists in terms of the dollars they doled out. It was their decision to give to the causes they believed in. Carnegie didn't have to set up an endowment for world peace. Did it work? I don't know, but he believed in the cause, so he put his billions in it. So the next time you go to the Carnegie Library, and give that a thought. And for even more about philanthropy and these historical robber barons, be sure to check out the website at HowStuffWorks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.